Welcome, 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 everyone. This is the Movies Movers podcast. I'm Roger, your host, and I'm super excited to be here with the one and only, the producer, director, and cinematographer of Do Not Split, Anders Hammer. How are you doing, Anders? I'm very fine. How are you? Oh, life is great. Looking forward to this conversation so much. What an incredible film. And the first thing that I have to ask you, there seems to be a strong sense of purpose driving you to tell this story. Do you recall when and how you got to claim this purpose? It was sometimes my projects are quite well planned, but I more or less just stumbled into Hong Kong in 2019. Uh, I was actually traveling. I had been in South Korea and I headed on to Taiwan, uh, which you know is very close to Hong Kong. And when I saw the news about the protests starting in Hong Kong, they started in June 2019. Um, I became very curious because I, I found it hard to understand how it would play out and how it was even possible for that many young people specifically to take on one of the most powerful countries in the world, which is China. Um, so I basically just took a plane from Taiwan to Hong Kong to see for myself. Um, I'm making documentaries, so that's what I, what I do in life. Uh, but I was not sure at all that I would make a documentary in Hong Kong. But I was totally fascinated by what I saw in the streets with these gigantic democracy protests with so many people, like hundreds of thousands, taking on to the streets. It was at that time, the summer of 2019, it, it, Many of the events were very friendly and were more like a festival atmosphere. Uh, and then normally it would shift in the afternoon and it would become more dramatic where you had these young black lads, young people in black dresses taking on the police. And the police had different kinds of weapons and the protesters had different kinds of weapons. And it was this... Uh, a cat and mouse game being played for hours in the streets. So I, I basically became really fascinated by the whole thing, both the purpose of the protests, which were to preserve uh, basic democratic rights in Hong Kong, and also how the protesters were organizing themselves. And I thought that if I could do anything in that situation, it would be to try to film it as close as possible. And that became the product. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that, Anders, because the, the thing that really struck me about this film is the ability for you to, in a way, sacrifice a comfortable life in service of truth. That is not to be taken for granted. Because in a community like ours, in a society like ours, where everything is so easy to access, you come in as a soldier for truth, right? And going on the field and telling these stories with a camera, really like a modern warrior serving the truth. When did this come to life for you? Oh, filming. Um, I'm, so I was studying journalism when I was very young. I think I started at university when I was 19. And my first subject was journalism. And then for the sec no, first year, actually, I went into this sort of practice. I could work in a newspaper for two months as a part of my education. And then I ended up staying with that newspaper and they gave me a position so I could continue studying while working there in the afternoons and the weekends. So I think I studied 
at university for seven years. And at the same time, like I was self-funding my um, my studies through the work in the newspaper. Uh, the newspaper was here in Oslo, Norway, and I was given a quite great deal of freedom, I felt. It was hectic, uh, but I also really liked doing news. Uh, but when I finished university, uh, I started to feel it being restricted in the sense that I couldn't travel and stay with people for as long as I wanted. I felt it was becoming even more hectic, the everyday life of work. And I often was not happy with my work, actually, because I thought it was uh, I, I didn't spend enough time to do the stories good enough. Uh, so I, I had been writing quite a lot about uh, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, Norway and 50 other countries had sent soldiers to Afghanistan, and that was a conflict that became increasingly more complicated and deadly. And I had been in Afghanistan in 2006 uh, for, I think it was around two weeks, uh, covering it for my newspaper. Uh, but then I had an idea that if I could actually start doing more proper field work, I could start telling stories from the ground and try to go into sides of life and also the conflict there that hadn't had too much uh, coverage in the Norwegian press. Uh, so I, I moved to Afghanistan uh, in the summer of uh, 2007, yes, so some, some years ago. Uh, and I, I had the scholarship. I was, my plan was actually to, to write about uh, private security companies for, who were taking a part in, in the conflict because that was what I had uh, studied when I took a master degree in peace and conflict studies. But when I, was, when I arrived in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, I really felt that this was... Uh, such an important event and that it also involved my own country in a greater deal that we actually were discussing here. Uh, so I wanted to contribute to the political debate in Norway and, and try to show as much as possible of what was going on on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, so I stayed there uh, much longer than planned. I ended up living there for six years. Uh, and during quite early in that process, I shifted from doing news reporting and started uh, experimenting with documentary documentaries in different formats. I think I worked on the first documentary film uh, the second year, and then I just continued. I did uh, many documentary movie projects in Afghanistan, and I have also written four documentary books um, since I first uh, went there. And for me, documentaries were really a solution to tell stories on a different level. Uh, I follow the news and I, all the time, and I'm really interested in news. I just feel that it's restricted in, in many ways. Uh, and so I also felt that there were a lot of what was going on in Afghanistan that was not possible to tell through new normal news reporting. Uh, so that's how I 
uh, I taught myself to film and edit and then just continued trying to grasp what was going on in Afghanistan through documentaries. And since then I moved on. I worked in Egypt and I worked in Iraq and Syria and I worked in East Africa uh, on different kind of documentary projects. So that became my life and it was it was not really well planned. It was more like me trying to find a way to tell stories. But I, I think now when I'm turning 44, I think this is what I'm going to continue doing for the rest of my working life. Uh, I really like it, uh, but I sort of stumble into it. That's really interesting to hear because there seem to be a lot of people in the film community always looking for the next story to tell, but it, sound, it sounds like you stumbled upon it and it, the story just came to you. Do you feel that in your career you ever had to force telling a story or was it more of an organic process all the way through for you? I think I felt news reporting at times being forced uh, in different ways, because you, you really need to deliver when you do news. You have to, you can't tell your editor that you're not going to hand in an article. You have to hand in an article, even though that article is quite bad. Uh, and so when I'm doing documentaries, I really, I'm hesitant to make uh, arrangement and deals early on in the process, because I'm really afraid <laughs> myself to, to commit to a project which I don't think will be good enough. Because um, I need access. You, as a documentary filmmaker, you real you really need close access. And you also, for me to do a story, it should be a supplement to other stories. If my story can't contribute to any new kind of insight, it's not really worth it. Then I should do something else. It will be a waste of everyone's uh, time and money. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable working with documentaries and I've spent a lot of time doing research and I also spend a lot of time before I make the decision to, to actually make a documentary. Sometimes, of course, it goes faster because I can see very early on that the material will tell a story. Um, I think that was actually the case in Hong Kong. I think I felt comfortable very early on after I started filming properly that this this would be something. Um, so, but other times it, that process can be very long, and sometimes I just drop projects or I delay them for years, and then I pick up the idea and I solve it in another way. Did you ever get that thought when shooting Do Not Split? Do not split. I was sure I would. From from the moment I started filming it, I had an idea, uh, a quite clear idea how I wanted to film, and that for me that hadn't been normal. Often I would fumble around, and it would be quite a messy start. Uh, but in this case, I had the idea that, uh, and it was also due to my own limitations. Uh, but I, I felt that. What I could do there was to try to just grasp the incredible intensity of the streets and to have my camera moving around with the protesters, almost like riding the wave of the protests. And that was 
a technique I had experimented with in other places. I, I worked uh, quite a long while in the field in Iraq and Syria for five months. And, and there I was experimenting with this quite flexible way of filming. I had a backpack with a lot of batteries and memory cards where uh, the need for power wouldn't stop me. And I had everything I needed on my body. Uh, and I'm filming myself, uh, so it's it's a quite uh, flexible and easy setup. Uh, and in Hong Kong, that worked very well because it was also quite a lot of running. I was following protesters who, for a lot of time, were escaping from the police, and we would all often end up in completely different places than where it started. Uh, so it was a very unpredictable situation, and I had these ideas of how I could try to to just work as intimate as possible and just be ready for whatever would happen. Sounds and like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an incredibly dangerous adventure in many ways. And I would love uh, to ask you if you could take us. Don't, don't you think so? I think. I was, for the most of the part, the one taking the smallest risk in Hong Kong because all these protesters, they were really risking a long time in prison and they were also risking uh, brutal um, arrests where the, the police would uh, give them really a hard time and beat them up in the streets. Uh, so uh, the biggest threat against me was to be hit by a random bullet or something else that was flying through uh, the air. Uh, the police, well, they were pushing me and they were verbally abusing me, but they were not treating me in the same way as the protesters, at least not for most of the time. Uh, so I, I felt um, I felt I was in greater danger when I was in um Iraq at the front line. I made a documentary where I followed a very young man uh, fighting with a Kurdish uh, Peshmerga guides, a Kurdish uh, militias. Uh, they were shooting at ISIS. And at that time, we were being shot at every day with live ammunition, and they had mines, and they had grenades, and they had uh, it was like a full on war. And that situation for me personally was much more risky than what I faced in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, I felt, <laughs> I think the, the biggest uh, toll on me was to see the desperation and also the, the feeling of hopelessness, at least later in the process for, for the protesters. They felt that they were fighting for the future. They, they wanted to protect the city as they knew it. And they were facing, um, it was a really, um, it was a fight out of balance because the police had so much more weapons and, and possibilities to, to crush them. Uh, so um, I felt sad for them because I, I became close to the people I followed and I felt sad for how uh, they were losing the main political fight. Wow, hearing about your stories in Iraq as well, getting a grasp on how you were risking your life every day, how do you emotionally prepare for something like that? 
I'm, it's a bit difficult to explain, I think. I, I think during the time in Afghanistan, I saw a lot of violence. And I was also living very close um, to areas where bombs went off. So there were several very big attacks close to my house. Uh, and I, I worked in those situations as a journalist. I took pictures and I was filming. Um, so I think that's the kind of experiences you, you don't know how you will react before you face them. Uh, but I, I think I have the ability to stay uh, quite calm. And I can also uh, continue to work in under quite a great deal of stress. Uh, and um, that that is pointless if you can't use it to anything. But I, I think in at least some of the stories I worked on, that has helped me to tell stories in a way that can also emotionally affect uh, the people who watch the stories. Um, so um, I think it's, it's the kind of ability that you will sort of step-by-step step learn that you actually have. Uh, and I'm, um, I, have had security training and first aid training, but uh, I really think that it was the many years in Afghanistan that also changed me and, and made me develop techniques for uh, working under duress and working in violent situations. In that experience in Afghanistan, those six years, seems like you really put yourself out there. Was there a chance for you to smooth into that experience or was it more of a, a quick transition straight on the field? And if you can tell us some stories of that time, because it sounds like that happened around the beginning of your 30s, right? Or your late yes. 20s, right? Yes. Um, I think it was both going slow and fast. The biggest change was the was to live in that kind of security environment for a long time because you can, it, it's a bit difficult to see yourself how you mentally and physically adjust to the security situation. But in Afghanistan, you really had to. Uh, during the first years, uh, was the first year, I was very close to some uh, really bad attacks, and I also I was following um, Afghan soldiers in um, the province in uh, South Afghanistan that was called the Kandahar. And they were supported by a Canadian special forces um, man, actually. Uh, and he had been in Somalia before. Now he was in Afghanistan in order to train Afghan soldiers. And they were stopping cars on this highway, the main highway in Kandahar province. And they were searching, looking for bombs. And then I think I had been the together with them for a couple of hours, taking pictures. It was very calm. Uh, it's also a beautiful area and very flat. And then suddenly there were bullets hitting right in front of my feet. Uh, and there were this constant shooting. And we started running because they were shooting directly at where we were standing. And we were standing on this road, which was high up in, in the um, landscape. It was very easy to see us. Uh, so it's, 
we ran and went behind uh, some walls and then the um, Canadian guy and some of the soldiers, uh, Afghan soldiers, uh, started shooting back. Uh, and then there was just this massive firefight and then turned out there were even more people shooting at us because there was coming bullets from another direction at the same time. So it became clear to the soldiers I was with that we were being surrounded and they wanted to either kill us or capture us. So it was this very dramatic fight. Um, I think it lasted for one hour, which is a long time for a firefight. Uh, the special forces, he was more like an instructor. He wanted all the Afghan soldiers to like hit hard back and and try to conduct a counter attack, uh, which was, I would say, really, really difficult and dangerous. Uh, but at some point, he gave up and he called in um, support, and we were... Uh, had to run to this armored car while still being shot at. Um, so this was um, one of the experiences I had very early on. Uh, and I think that those kind of experiences also will tell tell you if this is something that you can deal with, if something you can actually, is this a situation you can work in? Um, and it's clear that if you go out in the field with soldiers, it's a higher risk of being attacked, especially if you're going into areas where they are trying to capture or kill um, Taliban soldiers, which are is the case in Afghanistan. But also when I was living in Kabul, in the capital, there were these random, totally terrible suicide attacks and a car a bomb attacks that would just hit random areas of the city, uh, sometimes areas where there were a lot of people. Uh, so then you could uh, be on your way just to go shopping and you could suddenly be in a, in a massacre. And that's, uh, I think that is different in, in many ways because it, it's directed at civilians. Um, and it's not, they are fighting and trying to live a life as normal as possible. While soldiers in the field, they would normally be mentally prepared that at any time they could um, end up in an attack. But seeing these attacks, which there were many of in Kabul in the period I lived, lived there, they, that really affected me and it really made me sad because you could also see how it affected people. For me, again, it was easier because I have a Norwegian passport. I could leave any time I wanted. I could always leave to have breaks. Uh, but people living in Afghanistan, Afghans, they have the least popular passport in the world, I think. It, it's the most difficult passport to travel on. So they really feel stuck. So they didn't have a choice. So some of them wanted to stay there and try to change the society and had these great hopes for peace, while others who were afraid uh, and were, um, felt that they any time could lose relatives or their own lives, they normally would still be forced just to live there. And so that that situation really affected me. Wow. And thinking about the series of experiences you've had 
for the past 15 years, do you think there were signs or stories that you lived in your first 20 years of life that kind of anticipated this willingness to go out there and tell these stories? And you mean before I started working? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm from Tunsberg, which is a very small, calm town by the sea in Norway. Uh, but when I was 12 years old, um, I went to Northern Ireland uh, together with uh, my mother and her um, her boyfriend. And they were working as journalists and they were covering the civil war in Northern Ireland. Uh, this is quite a long time ago. This is in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but I was just following them as, as a kid. Uh, I think I was 11, 12 years old the first time I went there. And on the first trip, I met uh, this um, family through their work. And they had uh, four children and of the same age. Uh, as me. And I really bonded with the kids. I really liked playing football and staying with them. And we had the same interest in music. I was really into uh, alternative uh, British music at the time. Uh, So um, I ended up coming back to Northern Ireland uh, every year uh, during the summer or Christmas, during most parts of the 90s. Um, So that was a very different experience for me. Uh, I got a lot of new friends and I had like this second family. At the same time, it was a very violent conflict still going on in in Belfast, where, um, uh, so where I was staying. So I, that also gave me the experience of seeing soldiers and having to be prepared for uh, attacks, even though we went just out to play football or just mess around. Uh, so I, I think in some case that that brought, made me interested in international politics and also peace and conflict theories, because when I later went to university, that was what I was uh, specializing in. I studied political science and development and and took uh, this master degree uh, where we only read uh, peace and uh, conflict theories for two years. Wow, very interesting, Anders. Uh, There seems to be so much to talk about here. And uh, I do want to take it back a little bit to Do Not Split and the masterpiece that uh, has come out of this experience in Hong Kong. Uh, I would love to ask you, first of all, how does releasing a film like this one impact your personal life? Uh, <laughs> that's a difficult question. Um, we released the movie uh, late last year, early this year. It was uh, published in two versions, one international and one Norwegian. So it was up online from January. Um, and and people were watching it, but everything everything changed when it got uh, first uh, shortlisted for um, uh, the Oscars. And that was in early February. And then that started the process that I never, it's not close to anything I experienced before. Um, 
I was happy because it brought a lot of attention to the topic of the movie, which was the fight for democracy in Hong Kong and the development. And unfortunately, what we are covering in the movie has just continued since we stopped filming. So you have seen these basic human rights disappearing from the city and uh, you have seen the local government supported by the political leadership in China uh, implementing this very strict draconian national security law which is changing everything in Hong Kong. It basically is the end of uh, press freedom and freedom of speech and uh, and uh, freedom of assembly and it has put so much pressure on every aspect of life there. So I was happy that we could go into this development with this movie and and create a debate about what was happening. And uh, to a certain extent, I think that actually worked. And that was also uh, much thanks to uh, the process with the Oscars, because that just brought in the international press on another level. And when the we had the situation where we had 10 movies in our categories, uh, short documentaries that were shortlisted for the Oscars, and then in March that went down to five uh, nominated movies, and we were still <laughs> among them. And then it just became much more intense because I think the day after that uh, nomination were, were declared, uh, we, we started hearing rumors and getting reports that something was happening in Beijing, uh, that the political leadership had taken action. And, and we heard and saw the first news reports about how the Chinese authorities had told their local media to downplay the Oscars. The Oscars would not be screened live this year, and they would also not focus on certain categories. And since our movie is a movie about a group of young people fighting against the rule of Beijing, uh, the title of our movie was directly brought into the whole discussion. And we started getting a lot of phone calls and a lot of requests for interviews. And, and it became uh, it became a very hectic time uh, where we did many interviews about, about the movie. Um, and um, even though it's, it's a very negative development that is happening in Hong Kong, and I, I feel really sad for the situation and I, I really hope that there would be more debate about that both in my own country Norway and in the rest of the world but through this movie we were able to to put the spotlight on um, Hong Kong to a certain extent and we could contribute through giving a lot of interviews about the movie and about what was and still is happening in Hong Kong. Very interesting, Anders. I wonder if you've ever had to face any consequences for releasing such political films, or if there is something that you do to prevent those. You have to think about security in every way. Uh, first, when you are filming, and then how you're saving the material, and then how it's published, and what you show actually in, in the movie. Um, so, And that was... 
um, I'm working with a film company in the States, which is called uh, Field of Vision. They have a lot of experience working on difficult topics and they have their own security people who can give me advice and help me in many different ways. Uh, so we had a lot of precautions and also discussions about security on all kinds of levels. And then there were also, uh, we, had to, we had to evaluate what was happening when we suddenly had this whole pressure and all this, um, all these reports about uh, Beijing taking action against our movie. Uh, but I think that was on the level that was still possible to deal with. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a very, I never experienced anything like this. <laughs> so it, it's, um, uh, and I, it, I feel conflicted because, I, I, of course, I, I was happy about making this documentary because it, it really felt meaningful to me and um, engaged in what is happening in Hong Kong. And I, I really feel it's so important what is happening. And unfortunately, it's just going in a very, very negative direction. There's re really dark times in Hong Kong now. And we, we still get the reports every week about something new happening, which is restricting uh, the freedom of expression there. Uh, but uh, but it, it's a, I had some experiences before where where it felt like the movie could take a part in a, in a political debate, uh, but, but never experienced it in on this level. Wonderful, Anders. Lots of stories here, and of so many different kinds. I would love to ask you also as well on a more technical level, and this is also mm. coming from our community. Um, what was the process like of engaging with the camera? And I bet the camera was pretty light, uh, how mm. you would organize your setup, and then how would you save that footage on the mm. field? Mm. So I actually used a DSLR camera, which is made for um, the main purpose is to take pictures of uh, insects and uh, athletes. Uh, but this has a really good video function, at least to my mind. And it's such a robust, robust camera because I brought two cameras. Um, I also had a Sony, um, but that broke down just straight away. But this Canon 1DX Mark II, it worked for uh, all the time. It didn't, it didn't let me down <laughs> once. Uh, so it, it's a really strong camera. Uh, can also, it's also constructed in a way that it can take hits and uh, it uh, doesn't stop working if it's, you have water or other kind of liquids, which there were lots of because the police were using water cannons and they had these pepper sprays that they were also like, spraying our cameras and spraying our faces with. So it really got messed up uh, but it was still working so that's uh, that's a cam camera it looks like a normal still photo camera um, and I have a lot of batteries I think I have six or seven batteries fully charged and that can that lasts 
lasted a long while. And I had a lot of memory cards. Uh, and so I could actually be outside for many, many hours without having to go to my room to recharge or to empty the cards. And in that situation, that was the only way I could work, I think. I think I, I, I didn't want the stress of limitations of the equi equipment. Uh, and I, at the same time, I needed to have a quite small camera because I needed to be flexible, I needed to run, and there are also certainly <laughs> limits to how heavy the camera can be if you're going to work like I did for such a long time. Because I, I, after months of filming, I had pain in my body as well, but it would have been much worse if the camera was big. Um, so I had a monopod uh, just to support the camera, but that I normally use just the rest against my belt um, when I had uh, breaks or was waiting to film more. Uh, so a lot of the, uh, the shots you see in the movie are handheld. Uh, and I didn't use any gimbals or any kind of stabilizers, but I'm... I'm just I'm happy with how that camera worked. And I think it's important to have a quite easy setup in a, in a situation like that. It was, it would have been, um, I think it, it would have been stressful for me if I had a, like an incredibly expensive camera. That camera is quite expensive, but it's not crazy expensive. Uh, so I was prepared that it would, breakdown at some point uh, and then I just had to buy a new one uh, but um, I think you need so many things can happen to your camera and many like the microphones can also be affected by the hits or the liquid or the other stuff or just the humidity because it, it was really hot for some of the months um, so go simple at the same time be, be happy with the camera because I, I like the text, texture of that camera uh, and it, it works well in um, in the dark and I didn't use any extra lightning I uh, only used uh, lights that were there and um, you have a lot of nice street lights in, in Hong Kong but uh, I wanted to make it authentic and raw basically Thank you for sharing that I wonder if I wonder how big your bag with all those hard drives, how, how big <laughs> that was, <laughs> keeping them all separate as well. Right. Was it a specific way you um, you kept them safe and organized? Yeah, I, the, the cars I just had, like I would always pack my bag in the same way. And that's also because I had a gas mask and a helmet in the bag. And sometimes you had to react very fast and then you need, or for me, it works to then act automatically that I would always know, even if there was like tear gas out and I would have to change the memory card, I would know exactly where in my bag that memory card was. And I will also put the used full memory cards in a certain place, always the same place, because I was afraid to lose them. And so it was this almost like packing the bag like a paramedic. Um, but then uh, every night I would uh, empty the memory cards before I went to sleep. 
and I had the routine of always taking a backup copy. And then I had a system for getting hard drives out of Hong Kong. Uh, that part I'm not going to uh, describe, uh, but uh, that was important. Like uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't keep all your material in the same place uh, because you can lose it, or you can also something can also happen. You could potentially be raided or something like today. That could have easily have happened during, under this new national security law. So a lot of reporters having great difficulties in Hong Kong uh, today. Uh, but um, this is a system that I. Um, I'm, I'm quite used to from uh, Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. Should always have a backup and always have two backups actually, because it's so easy to destroy a hard drive, even though it's expensive and supposedly rugged and good. It's you will experience it breaking down, and you should have an extra copy. And then I would always clean my memory cards in case something would happen uh, the next day early. And I would also just make sure that they were clean because if you don't have certain routines in this kind of environment you will start messing up and you will suddenly start filming on a camera now on a memory card which is half full and then you will have all these practical problems in in the streets and also have a good way to archive the material so it's easier to log and go into when you go into the edits. Um, what I did also on this movie, which was very helpful, was that I was editing while I was there. Uh, and that was, that's sort of an insane project in, <laughs> in terms of the time you will use. Uh, but that made it like every day after breakfast, I would normally start looking at the material from the day before. And I would, I was, would normally be very curious to see if it looked like how I remember it, because sometimes memories can fool you, and sometimes you're not able to to capture what is actually happening there, or it just looks different. Something that felt very dramatic to me could look uh, quite plain in the recordings. Uh, so I, uh, I, this was also a way for me to constantly adjust the way I was filming. If I, if I saw that I was messing up or that I was too far away or that I was not filming in the right angle, I could always try to improve my work. And so, we, and that's how, uh, I think that was the technique of how, how the movie was made. It was just this constant being inside the project all the time and then trying to figure out what was happening in the streets and trying to figure out how that could be filmed in best possible way. It sounds like routine was king in this experience. Oh yeah, yeah. Sounds yeah. like. Very, is... Would you take us through how a day looked like for you in Hong Kong? <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, I, you know, normally, I would go late to bed because I would be sitting copying uh, from these memory cards uh, late very late in the night, sometimes also early morning. And sometimes I went for dinner like at three, four o'clock in the morning because that was when I came back from the field and maybe I hadn't been prepared for how long it would take that night. Uh, but then I would go to sleep and then you, when you wake up, like no, most of the events were taking time, happening in the early afternoon and the 
than the evenings and nights. So the mornings would be the most peaceful time. Uh, but I would may wake up uh, often feeling dizzy or just feeling bad because there was so much tear gas in the streets. I think there were more than 16,000 rounds of tear gas being fired for the first six months. And tear gas really, like I had a mask, but still it affected my skin uh, and it affects your body. And you always get some something in your throat, even though you have a mask and you're not wearing the mask all the time and you still have these particles flying in the air. So that's just like a really annoying feeling. It makes you feel um, sick. Uh, so <laughs> I would wake up feeling sick, then going for breakfast, and then uh, then feeling much better after breakfast. Uh, then normally it would still be quite calm, at least in some of the periods. Other periods were really hectic all the time, but uh, if I had time, I would buy some coffee and then go back to the room to edit and go through the material like I described in the process. And then I had a lot of help uh, from um, a woman who was working on a project. She was constantly following all these uh, uh, chats on on uh, different kinds of apps they used there, like encrypted apps where the protesters were discussing what to do and also reporting what was happening. So I would all, often get a message either from her or from some of the people I knew, some of the protesters. Uh, and then I would go to that area and start filming. Uh, so no, and that that would often like a lot of the the way this these protests were organized were that they wanted to surprise the police and the authorities. So uh, most of the events suddenly happened. Uh, but sometimes I would know that they, it would be a flash mob in a certain area at. Uh, one o'clock and then I would go there and I would see these people starting to gathering and then they would change clothes and then they would either sing some protest songs or put up some banners or do something else. Uh, later in the process um, many of the events became more um, dramatic and it would turn into clashes with the police. So it would be for instance, protesters showing up at the metro station where they heard that there were riot police standing. And that provoked a lot of the protesters, but also a lot of the people living in the areas. So they would start gathering around the police and, and uh, insult them and tell them to leave and tell them to put down their weapons. And you could see some of those uh, scenes in, in the movie as well. Uh, and that what would happen in those situations was was never really clear before it took place. Sometimes it would end peaceful, other times it would become very violent, and then the police would, would call in backups and would have more riot police, and they would start making arrests, and there would be a lot of tear gas and a lot of fighting. Um, so... I'm not sure if that that's a very good description of a normal day, but it was just an extremely unpredictable time. It was, um, it's difficult to remember all the numbers, but I think also there was 1,200 or 300 events also taking place in the first uh, six months, which meant that there were many events every day.
but and that could be all kinds of events from big battles to small uh, funny gags where they were just making fun of uh, the authorities or they would put some flowers up or they would uh, play some games or sing some songs so it was it was a very uh, varied time uh, but I think what we uh, what we, we will remember the most was when it became more dramatic and the fights became bigger and dangerous during this process were you ever politically protected in case something really bad happened no but I'm the film company um, worked with they have lawyers so we were prepared that something could happen uh, but I'm I had my credential as a journalist and it was discussed discussions during our time there whether we would be put under greater pressure than we were uh, but still the situation was very different than how it became after this national security law was implemented uh, because it, there were reporters were arrested uh, during the protests and some were given a very hard time and unfortunately most of the people who got a lot of most problems they were local because the police were acting differently at least in the first long period towards local reporters than foreign reporters i think they were more restrained when they were facing us and they were not abusing us in the same way at least not in the summer and all early autumn it changed quite a lot during the end then they became uh, much more aggressive also towards foreign reporters uh, and then for a long time they were accusing us of being spies or uh, being uh, sympathetic with the um, with the protesters uh, and sometimes they would knock us to the ground on purpose uh, and you could see that they were sort of picking a victim before they would cross and start running after the protesters and on their way towards the protesters they would on purpose run into some reporters trying to knock them down like a american football player uh, but uh, it was it was on that level uh, you could also see that some especially the younger police men they became really aggressive and started acting erratic and they were held back by superiors because they were trying to to attack you or just making these um, harsh verbal abuses uh, but I, I was not um, I was I was pushed around and I was abused verbally by the police but I I, I never had big problems with them sometimes they asked for my id and they took down my name and they registered me and also when i had been in the some of the areas they would stop me on the way out because they knew that i had been in the areas where the protesters were uh, but I, I would say I, I didn't have big problems uh, but you could see that some reporters had uh, and afterwards the situation to today is terrible where they are brought to trial uh, but 
you didn't have that situation back then. And when the, the democracy protests started in the summer of 2019, Hong Kong was known as a place with um, a fairly free press. And it was much greater freedom of press than in mainland China. Uh, so I would say that, and I could also, I had the idea of being filming very close to the police. Um, you can see that in the first part of the movie, I'm very close to them, and sometimes I'm running in between the police. That was not possible later in as the autumn approached, because they were getting increasingly unfriendly with how they were behaving when they saw us with the cameras. But in, in the beginning, I was able to be quite close to them. They didn't allow me to conduct any kind of normal interview. And I really wanted to speak with some of the police in the streets to hear how they experienced the whole thing, because they were, they were the spearhead of the local government. And they were they were trying to enforce this new rule where democracy basically was removed from Hong Kong. And I wanted, and I'm still wondering how that felt for them, if, this, if they felt that this is what they signed up when they became police, because they are supposed to protect their people and uh, to keep law and order. Um, but I, unfortunately, I was not able to do any kind of normal interview with the police. I could to film how they were behaving, and I could film quite close to them at times in the beginning, but that it sort of ended there. There was also another problem, uh, which you can see in the movie, that you had these uh, pro-Beijing uh, supporters, which mean, means that you had people going out in the streets protesting in support of the political leadership in Beijing, in China. Uh, and that group also interested me, even though they were much smaller than the pro-democracy protesters. They were waving the Chinese flag and they were singing and, and chanting. Uh, so I, I wanted to do regular interviews with them. Uh, but um, to very, very little extent, I was able to do that because it was, they accused us reporters of being biased, of favoring the um, protesters, the pro-democracy protesters, and also of making uh, fake news. Uh, and in some of those settings where they were demonstrating, it was uh, really unfriendly. You felt like they were really... Well, obviously, they often disliked us, but it was it also didn't feel um, that safe because uh, they they could make uh, some threats, and sometimes I would also be pushed by some of them. Uh, but I, I think the biggest problem in that sense for me was that I was not able to to get their trust in a way that I could make in like sensible long interviews and I, I would have liked to to do that but uh, it, it was it was a situation where uh, a lot of sources were difficult to approach mm -hmm. makes sense and I mean I gotta tell you it seems pretty hard to push someone like you around. <laughs> I mean, physically, <laughs> seems like that. But I can see that at the beginning of the film, there were shots 
where you were really in between the lines of the police. And then later on, there is a piece where the police is shining the light at you and telling you to go away. And then you start running. And I remember watching that that moment in the film and all the time, even with the people around me, just having that moment and thinking about the possibility of other similar events that didn't make it into the film. Were there any moments that didn't make it into the film that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, there are, there are many moments because I think we when we made the project, we were sure from the beginning that we make, would make a short documentary. And that has its own challenges. Uh, and of course, there's the time restriction. A short documentary has to be short. Uh, in our case, it had to be under 40 minutes. That was uh, what we aimed for. Um, so then in the editing, sometimes we would take out sequences that could tell a story well, but they were too similar to another one. So, and I think many of the more action-packed sequences had that challenge uh, uh, within that we, uh, we, if we were to implement a sequence, it should tell its own story and shouldn't tell the same um, story as the forthcoming sequences. Uh, so it was more on that level, picking different sequences, um, also depending on the quality of how I filmed them, because uh, sometimes uh, I was in situations that I would have liked to, to put in the movie, but I was not able to film them in a good enough way. Uh, but I, I think there were many, many... Um, lots of recordings that could have made it into the film. And I still have a lot of material which I want to, I want to continue to work on Hong Kong. So let's see if I will publish um, some other parts later. I'm, I'm quite sure I will because every now and then I will put out some pictures and that will also be pictures from the situations uh, that are not in in the movie, um, but so no, no, man, many many situations. Uh, but it also it's also the challenge of being the emotions which are there in the actual situation and what is being seen through the camera, and that is difficult. I think for like people living in Hong Kong and having have these experiences, they will see a lot in the material. Uh, but if you are aiming for publishing it for an international audience, you also need to explain more or give them the opportunity to understand what you are showing. I think we are not, uh, it's, it's quite, uh, it's not too much information in this movie. Uh, you don't have a voice telling people what you are watching, and you, and we have very very few text cards. So maybe it's already challenging to watch even the format it ended up in. Uh, but it, and you have to. Well, I, I try to evaluate the sequences in a way that they have to make sense for the viewers, and we wanted to publish it to try to make as many people care around the world. So then it should be. Uh, told in a way that 
will will not just irritate them because they don't really understand what they see. Uh, wow, I've heard a hint of a sequel in there. Is that in the works? <laughs> uh, I actually just came off another project. So I made an, another documentary series here in Norway, which is a, on a completely different topic. And that was a very, very hectic period. So I, I'm now going back to do not split, to have screenings. And luckily, we will start having some physical screenings this summer because of due to the pandemic, where that has not been possible in a long, long while. Um, so I'll, I'll see. Um, I, I, I know that I will publish more on Hong Kong. But at this moment, I, honestly, I, I don't know in, in what way. Uh, because uh, I, uh, the, we are happy to still have screenings of Do Not Split, and I'm happy that we could take that into different places where we are have debates about what is happening in Hong Kong. And even though we had the pandemic, we have had a lot of digital meetings with uh, festivals and media and organizations in many different places in the world and that's that's a really that feels uh, great <laughs> even though we are discussing very negative developments I'm, I'm happy that we are have this process and it's uh, it's going to continue um, out this uh, autumn as well so that's um, uh, we'll see we'll see I'll I'll publish more at some some point. Fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to that. And uh, I got to say that the editing of the film also served the narrative so well uh, with, the, with, with it being so intense and yet being dry in a sense that it, it allowed the audience to research mm. uh, on its own and be able to fish for those dynamics. Mm. And that's really what I think makes the film so powerful is mm. that people are not even used to engaging with content like this. And so I wonder how, and I wish nothing but the best for this film to be able to make it out there in the world in the way that you see it as well. Mm -hmm. And so I want to ask you, how do you see this film in its optimum scenario, right? What would be the best way for you to get this film out there in the world? Um, we made a preliminary version of the movie for 20 minutes for Sundance Film Festival. Um, it uh, was screened there at the end of January, 2020. So that was the last time I went to any kind of film festival in a physical way. Uh, but that was an amazing experience. A lot of really nice movies and I was also very happy to have cinema screenings of Do Not Split. And then uh, just to watch it on a big screen was uh, a very <laughs> nice experience after uh, having worked on the material on computers for a very long while, and then also to engage with the audience uh, in the same room. Uh, that was uh, also a great experience. And at, this is taking place in Utah, uh, in the States. And uh, I was also taking part in this uh, school visit thing where I went and met students. Um, and that was also a great experience to discuss it with people who were at the same age as the people in the movie, 
which are teenagers, mostly teenagers and people in their 20s. Um, so um, I, I want to do more of that. And unfortunately, it's a bit difficult to plan due to the pandemic and these ongoing, never-ending restrictions. Uh, but uh, but it seems like we will be able to start that process uh, during this uh, summer. And that uh, for me, that will be a great way of engaging with the audience. Uh, but the main purpose of making the movie is to make it accessible for everyone online. And that has been the case since we published it in January um, this year. And that has even made it possible for people to watch it uh, in Hong Kong, because it, at this moment it's impossible to screen this movie physically in Hong Kong, and they, the government will also not allow any similar documentaries to be screened in theaters. Uh, and we've seen many examples of how those kind of screenings have been stopped. Uh, but it, I like the anarchy <laughs> of the internet that you can actually you can make it accessible. So then you will have problems in mainland China where they have the great, a great uh, firewall on internet where they are really censoring um, what is published online. But in many, many countries around the world, like almost the whole world, you can now watch this movie for free. And that I like. I like that concept. And that is also a way of how uh, Field of Vision, the film company, works. And and it feels in a way, it feels like a, uh, like a punky attitude. They are not going for the greatest uh, deal to cash in as most, much money as possible. But the purpose is to make it accessible for as many people as possible. Um, and the people are watching it and they're still watching it. And we have, have it on all these different platforms. It's on... Fieldervision's own webpage and it's on YouTube and Vimeo and it's on Facebook and other platforms and and it has also had like more normal TV screenings. But that's um, I like that concept. So that's um, you can reach so many more people through the net than to have uh, cinema screenings. But it's great to do both. Exactly. That's wonderful. And when did the collaboration with the Field of Vision actually start? Um, I, I read about Field of Vision when they were established in 2015. Uh, and at that time, I was very impressed by Laura Poitras' work. She is one of the directors who established Field of Vision. And then uh, I was in Iraq and I made a pilot uh, at the end of 2015. Uh, where I followed uh, militia, Shia militia in um, in Baghdad on their way to the front line, and they were driving in this lorry, putting on music and started to dance. So they were dancing the whole way with these big speakers on their way out into the war. And for me, it was just like a very surreal setting. But I was filming it and I was making this sequence with these soldiers dancing and singing on their way to the front line to fight ISIS. Uh, and that became a pilot that I sent to Laura Petras in December 2015. Often, if you email a pilot in Norway, 
you will not get an answer. <laughs> it would take a lot of time. But uh, Petras, uh, I think she answered the same day. And she was very positive and she set up a talk. And then we started discussing a project and I had this idea of making a documentary project on different kinds of armed groups fighting against uh, ISIS. Um, I had already made one documentary film about this Norwegian uh, Kurdish guy who were fighting against ISIS and then I'd seen that other kinds of armed groups were out in the field. So I wanted to make like short portraits of they, them. And so then I ended up doing a documentary series for Field of Vision uh, about uh, different armed groups in Syria and Iraq uh, fighting ISIS. It's called uh, Our Allies, Our Allies, and it's on their webpage. Uh, Three-part story. Uh, so I, that project uh, took quite a while, and I got to know them quite well, and I also... I'm also watching the, the other movies they are publishing, and I really like the way they work. They are very flexible, and they are trying to mix uh, traditional documentary filmmaking with journalism. So, and that's that sort of <laughs> the same way I've gone myself. I went from journalism to try to adapt and, and use documentary filmmaking techniques. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really in favor of that way of working because it opens so many spaces for you and you can experiment a lot and still work on on topics which um, are um, feels important uh, here and here and now. So when I when I started filming in Hong Kong, I also started making a pilot because that's normally how I will start for myself because it's it's a way to see and try to understand how the material will work and also to make all these kind of adjustments which I talked about. And also a way to approach others because if you're going to do documentaries, uh, you will need money. And Hong Kong is not a, not a cheap city to, to be in. So I knew that uh, this could take a while and I uh, would need funding. Um, so. For me, Field of Vision was the first choice and they were the first organization that I contacted. And that was for several reasons. One is that I I was sure that they would be interested in the topic because I think they care about the world uh, to a certain degree in the same way as I do. And at this time, it felt like one of the most important events in international politics. Uh, I didn't have, I had some ideas of how I would work, but I didn't have like a full um, sketch for the whole movie. But I knew that Field Division would also be open to that concept because you, they know that a project will never uh, end up um, exactly like you planned it from the start. So it's a, it's a constant pr process. Uh, but but there were also limitations in the sense that I knew that, for instance, there were no use for me to go to a Norwegian organization or to, to go to the Norwegian public broadcaster because they will not fund this kind of project from abroad if it's not a Norwegian character in the main role. And I think that's the case in many, many countries, and that's the problems that many documentary filmmakers and other freelance journalists are facing that 
a lot of the established media care about uh, their own uh, people um, and they will not use a lot of resources on international stories. Um, of course, I could have gone to um, a a big international TV station, but I, I felt that field of vision was the best fit. So um, I made a pilot and uh, I sent it once again to Laura Poitras. Uh, she was on her way out to start making movies on her own again, uh, but she just encouraged me to to send the pilot uh, to the rest of the company and also to, to fill out this kind of... Um, uh, application. Uh, they didn't have that the first time when I worked on the Iraq-Syria project, but now they have an application system which is open to everyone. Everyone can find it on their webpage, and there you you will, in addition to supply a link to a pilot, uh, you will just describe your project and also uh, describe in quite good detail your visual uh, approach, how you are planning to solve the movie in a visual way. And that I really liked, but that is also a challenge because I'm not used to having to write uh, several pages on that topic and that part of the process. But for me, it really helped because then I really had to think through how I wanted to film this and which technique to use, uh, which kind of camera equipment and how to make uh, it visually coherent and that's um, and that that helped me a lot and and these applications normally will help me a lot because I, I will write um, funding applications early on in the process and the fact that I have to that I'm forced to put on paper what I'm actually working on that that's a, a process which uh, is very beneficial for the whole project. It can also make you save time and money. You don't mess around too much. That's very interesting to hear. And I find it fascinating because when you're on the field, you also happen to gather footage from other people that were on location, it seemed like so. And so I wonder if there was a method that you adopted to talk to these people and have them provide you with footage. Oh, uh, then it's different kind of, um, it was different kind of ways. Um, some of the footage was collected by the same woman, uh, her name is Kathy, uh, who were following the, um, these apps with all these talks about the protests. Uh, and she was the one uh, connecting me to the drone pilot who's filming using the drone. There's one part of the movie where there's a big fight on the bridge at the university who is suddenly, after being on the ground for quite a long time, we go up in the air and we follow the drone camera in the same situation. Um, and I saw the drone, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> didn't know the guy at the at the point, but she uh, she connected us, and that that was great. Uh, I'm really happy for that. Uh, and then some of the other uh, footage is filmed by the protesters themselves, and that was especially after the pandemic, uh, because of, I was there in the beginning, and then I left, and then I was not able to re-enter, uh, and that was of course a problem because I felt that when 
uh, it was so clear that the pandemic would also change the dynamics of the protests that it, you could also see that the government was using this as, as an opportunity to stop people from gathering. Uh, but then I had the challenge of filming that because uh, I was not there. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy, and it also made sense in the within the project, to my mind, because I've been following some of these protesters for a very long time, very closely, and then uh, it would make sense to shift totally to their perspective. And they are filming themselves with their mobiles and describing what we see. Uh, so I think I've, I was lucky in that sense. Uh, and then also Kathy, who was still in Hong Kong, and she was filming in some of the other parts where you can see at the end of the, of the movie. Uh, so it was a puzzle. Um, and I, I, I like the participatory documentary film techniques, and I worked on that in Afghanistan for quite a long time. We had a project running in Afghanistan for three years where young Afghans were filming their own lives. So then we were having workshops, but we were working more like uh, instructors than uh, uh, camera persons ourselves. So I have some experience from that kind of work and it's it's a quite different way uh, uh, to work because it, I think that kind of material can look uh, easier attainable than how it really is. It's it's difficult to to make a whole movie based on people filming themselves, and it's also difficult to make parts uh, because it it has to fit in. Uh, but the protesters who were filming were re really doing a great job, and I'm very happy that we were able to implement also those parts of the stories. Wow, and during this process, did they ever identify you and your purpose in Hong Kong? Or were you ever being followed? Or or did you ever have to react to a procedure like that? Uh, you mean by the police? Yeah. Um, sometimes they, uh, they stopped me in certain areas and at certain times. Uh, but they were, they were checking my ID and they were not, uh, but it was not, creating a lot of problems for me. I don't know to what extent they were actually following us. Uh, there, there are cameras everywhere in Hong Kong, so it's quite easy you know, from a surveillance perspective to, to film and see a lot. Uh, but I, I was not giving a hard time at any moment, well, which I've experienced. I've been arrested in other places. I, I know I have the experience of having uh, bigger problems <laughs> with the police, uh, but it, it didn't happen uh, in, in that sense in, in Hong Kong to me. I bet you always had to balance the awareness on the frame with the awareness of the situation. Is there a yeah. way you do that? Um, then it's it's difficult to say. I felt like I was going into this just mental state of filming and focusing a lot because I think it, I was often thinking about not shaking the camera too much because I felt that every time I was shaking the camera I was just ruining everything mm -hmm. because you it's impossible to watch that uh, you get seasick. Uh, so I was I was thinking a lot about okay so this is an important uh, part I have to keep the camera steady, 
And all the times I was running, like you could see that I'm filming and running, and then you have to film in another way and just try to adjust your whole body in a way. And that could also make difficulties in the way that I would uh, trip over uh, and fall because I was not watching my steps. You can see there's one part in the movie. I don't think you see it in the movie, but I know because <laughs> I was filming. But uh, I was filming this um, bank being put on fire. They had uh, crushed the window, and then they were throwing a bottle, uh, Molotov cocktail, into the bank. And then the flames just became much bigger than I expected. So it sort of hit me and made me trip backwards. And then this guy brought us and grabbed me in the mid-air and just held me up. So <laughs> I was able to continue filming without falling on my back. And he, and he was holding me like a camera. So that was fun. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What an experience. And um, Anders, I really want to thank you because uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is where those movies... They, they get to the highest level and they become human endeavors. They really become something magical that live on their own. And um, I can't wait to see the impact that this film is going to create and the impact that it has already created. And that speaks to the power of movies and storytelling and to the power of individuals like you that are willing to even sacrifice a big portion of their life, whether it's a year or more, uh, living and dedicating themselves to stories that are meaningful and embrace the resiliency of the human spirit. So before wrapping everything up, I actually want to ask you for our community as well, for filmmakers that would love to explore and that it, devote themselves to a career like yours, what would be your advice to those filmmakers? Uh, learn as much of the practical stuff as possible. That really helped me because it had given me a lot of freedom to actually be able to film myself and also to edit. Uh, we had several editors and other people filmed also part of the, this movie, but being able to film myself and edit, it gives me uh, a lot of freedom and also a lot of possibilities to direct movies in different ways because I, I like to experiment and use different kind of techniques. And if you have the ability to, to just do the technical, practical stuff, it, it will be easier. Uh, so that's one point. I think the other point is just to, be, to believe in yourself, which is important when you're working with uh, documentaries because you're gonna face a lot of resistance and a lot of uh, editors and other people in charge of the funds will say no. So you have to, I think that when you take this uh, masterclass with uh, Warner Hartzog, it says it's the, it's the business of rejections. And you have to sort of just get used to that and continue. And if you believe in the project, just continue. And, and I, I don't know, maybe it's, it, it sounds naive, but I think it's one of the most important things as a documentary uh, filmmaker is to believe in your project. If it feels important for you and you think that you could tell an important story that will affect people and even change politics, you should continue to with the project as long as possible uh, within certain limits. Wow. And how does this career also immerse in risk? How does this impact your relationship with your family? Uh, 
I think it, I think many people who work abroad as journalists or documentary filmmakers will feel that it's a challenge to <laughs> uh, to connect with the uh, uh, people at home and the people where you come from. So that's um, I don't like to talk too much about that. Uh, part because I, I feel like everywhere I worked, I met people who are in a more difficult situation than myself, and and I always have the choice to go somewhere, and my situation is always easier. So I'm I'm really uh, I also read uh, react in a negative way if I read articles with journalists of are working abroad and complaining about their own situation because for me it's like it's your own choice and sometimes it can be a quite egoistic choice it's um, because you you are um, you are making other people worried and and then you have uh, then that can also differ because people well, have different perspectives of, of your work uh, but I, I think uh I don't know. If I try to say anything, it would just be a cliche. Uh, it is possible to balance uh, in to a certain extent, but <laughs> it will be a challenge. Wow, Anders, what an incredible conversation. It just flew by for me, and I want to thank you also on behalf of the whole community for the film you made, for what you represent as an individual, as a filmmaker. And uh, I can't wait to see your next project. I'm really, really excited about that. I'm excited about your future as a filmmaker. Uh, Anders, is there anything else you would like to share before we wrap up this conversation? No, just thank you for taking the time and all the kind words. It's been a pleasure. I'm really happy to take part and it's been nice speaking with you. Anders, it's been my absolute pleasure. A big hug to you, a big hug to you all out there listening to this conversation. This is the Movies Move Us podcast. I'm Rogero, your host, and never ever forget, we eat emotions, we drink energy, we breathe stories, Movies Move Us. Catch you on the next one. Movies Move Us.